Welcome everyone to the Changemakers podcast. In today's episode, we have Celine Warren, a teacher at heart driven by the question, what experiences do students need to build their identities, broaden their understanding of the world and make choices that will fulfill their lives? She's the director of Student Pathways at Compass Academy, based in Colorado, but is currently in the Netherlands, exploring the Dutch secondary education choices with the aim to take best practices and models back to the US. In this episode, we talk about differences and similarities between American and some European education models, we question the current measures of student performance and growth, and we also reflect on the complexity of the teacher profession. Welcome, Celine, to the Changemakers podcast. It's a real pleasure to have you uh, here today um, and to pick your brain a little bit on your background and your projects and your vision. So I'm really looking forward to, to this conversation. <laughs> okay, awesome. So let's get this kick started by you introducing yourself and telling uh, me and the, the people who are going to listen to this a little bit about, you know, your background, where do you come from and what are you currently busy doing? Sure. So I, my background is um, I have been a teacher in Denver, Colorado, so in the U.S. for the past seven years. Um, and before that, I was also involved in education, but in Uh, kind of more informal or voluntary capacities. Um, but I've been a special education teacher for seven years. And in the U.S., special, special education means um, focusing on students with disabilities. So um, my job has been really to service those students in general education and make sure that those students are getting the, the best um, educational opportunities that we can provide. So in Denver, I'm part of a charter school, and a few years ago, we received a big grant um, from a foundation called the XQ Foundation, and the grant is to continue building our school. So we currently are teaching 6th, 7th, and 8th grade, so in the U.S., that's like 11 through 14 years old. And, we and the grant we received is to build out our school to be able to serve students all the way through 18 years old. And we received the grant because we set forth a proposal um, for some, to, kind of, to create a really innovative and out-of-the-box uh, model. So I'm, now I'm on the team, luckily, and I feel really grateful for this opportunity, I'm on the team of people who are designing um, kind of this extension or the second phase of our school. So that's my big, my big project. Um, right now I'm also this kind of a, an offshoot. So the, the past few months I've been living in Amsterdam, I received a grant, um, called the Fulbright distinguished awards in teaching. And that's for educators, um, who, have interest in learning uh, practices, systems, structures from uh, from another country's context. So I received the grant to study in Holland, and I've really been focusing in the Netherlands on their secondary education system. And because in the U, I mean, there are, the systems are radically different, um, European secondary education and U.S. secondary education. But I think in the U.S. we have a lot to learn about Um, how Europeans, and in my case specifically the Dutch, are structuring vocational education. Um, and then also there are some interesting trends happening in, in the Dutch education system with personalized learning um, as kind of a, a pushback, I would say, to the hierarchical um, and really highly structured tracking system Um, there are some people who are pushing back against that and creating some really awesome, really innovative personalized learning schools. Um, so my current research is, it, it, it's mostly through observation, interview, um, and really school visits to see what kind of um, best practices I can learn from the Dutch system to implement um, back, back in our school when I return to the U.S., 
Sounds amazing. If only we had more collaboration <laughs> in the world. There is so much to learn from each other. I'm, I'm really curious because you mentioned um, that the US and the European, and in this case, the Dutch system are radically different. What would you say are the biggest differences? <laughs> That's a bit, there's a big a big question, and I appreciate you asking me so that I can kind of uh, try and articulate it. So I think in a lot of European systems, there's, um, and I'll speak to the Dutch system because that's what I'm becoming the most familiar with. There's a system of, of differentiation that's, that's embedded with, within the educational system. And what I mean by that, for example, is in the Netherlands, when a student is 12, um, he or she takes a national exam. And then that test score in conjunction with what the teacher Uh, that student's teacher knows about him or her recommends a track. Um, so either that student will move on to a university track and a kind of a, a mixed hybrid applied, applied, they call it hobo. It's like a applied sciences, theory, applied yeah. sciences, things, applied theory track or a pre vocational track. Um, And then those tracks either last for six, five, or four years, respectively. And then the student moves on to post-secondary education, typically following the track that they're already in. Um, in the Netherlands, there's some capacity for students to move up or down, um, but the system doesn't seem to me to be as flexible as maybe like the Swiss system is. Um But so that's different because in the in the U.S. we really have what I call comprehensive education. So it's kind of this like one size fits all education until every until kids are 18. So students go to what we call middle school until they're about 14 and then they move into high school. And really the only opportunities for differentiation are students might take advanced courses. Students might take um opt into maybe like a theater program or something kind of um, extracurricular. But really overall, there's, there's not a lot, of, a lot of opportunity to differentiate your pathway. And the differentiation comes when students go to university, if that's what they do. Um, and I think that that's both systems are in some way pro problematic. Um, but I think what I'm learning is that the, the major difference is that some of the educational choices for students in Europe are made far earlier than they are for students in the U S. Hmm. Interesting. Mm. What, what kind of drew you to this area of education and learning in the first place? Because you said you were a teacher before. What kind of, do, did you know that that was your passion before you started doing that? So, Uh, I, it's got, it's come about pretty organically, I think, because, um, so w where this started is, is, I suppose this, my focus on this idea of pathways and, um, really giving, providing students more personalized experiences that will lead them to better, like more aligned options after they graduate from high school. That idea comes from, came from my experience as a special education teacher. And what I experienced as a special education teacher was that for students with disabilities, um, and so maybe that was dyslexia, maybe that was an attention deficit disorder, um, maybe that was, an, you know, some emotional dysregulation is, is that I, I felt like my students, um, once they went into high school, their options were extremely limited. Um, I, I don't, I didn't feel like there was a, a lot of potential, um, for them to really tap into some of their strengths because the U S it's, we have a, a very, we, we weigh the value of a, of a college or of a university education and a bachelor's degree, we weigh that really, really heavily. And so, if, and so for, for students who, who that's not appropriate, you know, there's, there's not a lot of other option for them. Um, and so consequently, a lot of students drop out from school. A lot of students um, end up not really ever 
benefiting or, or, or reaching their potential. And so my curiosity came from this idea that I, like, I know, I knew my students so well, I knew their strengths. Like, for example, I, I might have a student who, who has a significant reading disability, but is so strong verbally. You know, I, ju- I just did not think it was fair that that student, you know, his, that his post-secondary life options were so limited just because he, he or she wasn't um, successful in the traditional school setting. So my curiosity came from how can we create different pathways? How can we create a school that offers different options to expose these students, um, to, to train them in their strengths, to expose them at what they're good at, to expose them to the world of work so that they can be be um, aligned to better opportunities when they finish, when they finish school. Um, and so I think, so that kind of led me to the curiosity of what, uh, of to explore what's going on um, in European systems and how they're meeting different needs, um, the different needs of kids by, by creating kind of different, different um, learning tracks. Sounds amazing. Very inspiring already that, you know, you kind of experience the problem and you try to look for solutions uh, to kind of tackle it. Um, So can you tell me a little bit more about Compass Academy and, you know, where would you like to see it in the future? Yeah, I would love to. So uh, Compass Academy, that's um, our school in Denver, is a really unique model of a school and it's unique for a few reasons. So, so firstly, it's unique because we are, we are lucky to have a few really critical partnerships. So our school has a partnership with Johns Hopkins university, which means that we have a bit of a research approach to what we're doing on the ground. Um, so for example, last year I took part, um, or I really, I was the lead of a research project that was designed by Johns Hopkins, uh, professors, but that I, and researchers, but I implemented on the ground and it was essentially looking at different instructional models. So for example, I was looking at, um, instructional models, meaning how the teacher actually delivers content. So I was looking at like blended learning, flip learning, project-based learning, and, and collecting data on um, all these different variables, like how, what was student engagement like, what was their metacognition like, um, what was their long-term retention like, in order to really be able to determine how our students learn best. Um, and so I think because of this partnership, our school is really like a, just a, a beautiful like beta test um, for things that are working right now with our population of kids. Um, and, and so to value research um, in schools, I think, is really unique and, and really important. Um, so that's great for Compass. Another reason we're unique is, we, is the population of kids that we serve. So we serve a, a very challenging population of students in the sense that um, it's a high poverty area of significant percentage of our students have dealt with um, personal trauma. So whether that's um, addiction in the family, like some type of drug or alcohol abuse in the family, um, deportation of parents, um, high poverty environments, domestic violence. Like we have a almost twice as many students with that kind of profile um, than an average an average um, urban environment, an average urban school. Uh, we have a very high portion of kids who are who have English as their second language. Uh, many of our students are immigrants from Mexico, and um, we have a significant number of kids who come to us very behind already in school. So the average reading level for our sixth graders when we get them is two to three years behind. So we so we are presented with a body of students um, that can be perceived as really challenging. But I work with a, with educators and leaders who really believe that all kids deserve um the best education. And so we don't turn any child away. And in fact, we inform our practices 
based on what our students need. So we're really invested in figuring out how to serve our students bilingually. How are we giving them instruction in Spanish and English? Um, And we're heavily invested in trauma-informed care. So we're looking at knowing that we have such a significant population of students with trauma, how are we changing our behavior as educators? How are we changing our classroom environment um, to be more appropriate for these, for students with that profile and to, to allow them to feel safe um, and to allow them to really access the learning in school. So the, I think that's what makes our school especially unique. What I'd love to see in the future um, is for us is for us to be successful. Um, there's, I this could open up a massive can of worms, but the way schools are evaluated in the in Colorado um, is really really complicated. And so, and what I mean by that is it's heavily uh, based on test performance. And so you can imagine with a population of students that we serve, our test performance isn't always as high as a school with a maybe like a more affluent student student body. So we, we're really in a political fight to be able to continue to serve our students. So I'd like to see us be successful. Um, I'd like to see our high school open where we anticipate being able to open our high school um, that I'm part of designing in 2020. Um, and then in the really long term, I, I hope that our school is a model um, and that we can start to scale what we're doing um, so that people see that the type of education that we're offering is, is what's best for, for students now. That sounds amazing. Thank you. <laughs> and, it, and it's really awesome that, you know, you're, you're trying to tackle a part of our society that hasn't been as fortunate as the others and who, have, who are going through like certain challenges in their families and in their environment. So it's really amazing that, you know, you, you create that safety, safe environment for them uh, where they can learn. Um, could you tell me a little bit more about, you know, how do students actually perceive Compass Academy and, you know, how, how do you see development and progress? Yeah, I think that's, <laughs> that's such a great question. And I wish I could have one of my students answer that question on my <laughs> behalf. Um, but I I think the, the biggest component um, of creating a successful school with the challenges that we face um, is, re- is relationship. So um, g- getting students bought in, reinvested in, to, in the idea of school, um, that school is helpful, that learning is good, that they can succeed. And a lot of that really comes through the power of, of the teacher um, to be able to reinstill that intrinsic motivation. So something that we see from our students is that they really, um, that our relationships with our students are very, very strong. So when outside parties come and um, kind of collect data on the pulse of the school, that's something that's that's pretty consistently observed is that our students feel really safe. They feel really supported um, more so than in other schools. And our students say that they feel like there's an adult that they can talk to, that there's an adult that they can trust. Um, so that's a that's a, a a big component of getting kids back on the right track and and supporting them in accessing their learning. Because if there's no trust in the classroom, if a student doesn't trust the adult that's that's guiding them, then then there's kind of always a stress response that will be in the way of them ac- really accessing the learning. Um, I think one of the the barriers that we're facing. I, th- I think, and I, I'm curious to know what my colleagues think, um, is actually peer-to-peer relationships. Um, I think that's those, and maybe that's true of any middle school, <laughs> from how, how the kids are from ages 11 to 14. Um, but a barrier that we face, I think, is trust between, um, between students. So that's, that's an area of, of improvement for us and, and something we'll continue to work on. Mm-hmm. Um. I, I find it very interesting that you mentioned, you know, the, the word safety and trust, um, communication, 
within a school system. Uh, and going a little bit back to, to what you said before, that one of your current challenges is kind of, you know, make this school work uh, within yeah. Colorado, for example, because uh, as I hear a lot, um, a lot of evaluation or the success of a school depends on the student performers in a way. Yep. Um, how do you kind of convince or how do you engage in conversation with, let's say, the local government or, I don't know, or the um, state government in convincing them that, hey, kids feel safe. It's important that they uh, trust us. Uh, you can see that they are happy. How, if you had experience, of course, how, how do you think can, we can convince this um, government bodies to you know, shift the focus from great performance to, you know, kids actually being happy and fulfilled? Yeah, I, th I think that's a, gr a great question. And so my, we're extremely, my school administration and, and the leadership of my school is extremely conscientious of how we're using st student voice to, to leverage our, our power as a school. Um, and one thing, I think one strength of our, our, leadership is that they're very, very politically active. And so something, a practice that we, we, we do is we often, if not always attend the school board meetings. Um, and so those are monthly meetings, um, and school boards in the U S are elected. So this, the Denver public schools has a board, um, of elected officials who hold public meetings, Um, and at these meetings there are always opportunities for community members to stand up. There's always um, kind of a forum at the end for people to stand up and, and speak and vocalize uh, gratitude or vocalize issues. And so we, we consistently attend these meetings and have our students um, vocalizing from, from their own perspective, the progress that they're making, um, the value of their education at Compass. And so to get students politically active and, and have their voice being heard. So it's not just teachers saying that, te that we know we're doing a good job, um, I think is something that really makes us stand out. And it's like, it's a really conscientious, um, mm -hmm. it's a conscientious move on our part to have the students voice shine through. Um, So their testimonials in those type of um, like political forums are really important. I also know that in terms of shifting the value and shifting like the the overemphasis on on test results as the primary indicator of school performance a conversation that we're having is what is the weight, you know, when you're, when you're taking calculating the matrix of a school's performance and, and all of these different components are weighted, what is the weight of growth? So you can say, so we don't, we might not have any students, for example, who are reading at their grade level, who are reading proficiently, but, and so, so in the current matrix and in, in the Like that's weighted very heavily against us because it's saying, oh, look, and like we're we're penalized for not having any students who are on grade level. However, our argument is, okay, so we don't have any students on grade level, but look how many students we got to grow two years. You know, and, and it speaks volumes for the, the mastery of teaching when you can have a student grow two academic years in, in any content so reading writing math science if they can experience two years of academic growth in one I mean that's tremendous um, so our our present fight is to really put an put a greater emphasis um, on those growth measures than on mm -hmm. kind of like the final uh, per, the final performance rating mm -hmm, mm -hmm. makes sense and you mentioned this growth <laughs> and I also Uh, saw that kind of the slogan of Compass Academy is where learners and leaders grow. Um, I'm wondering, what do you mean by this growth? And, you know, what, what does student growth mean? And how do you evaluate it? And is there more indicators to it besides, you know, let's say grades or performance? Yeah, yeah. I think 
I think that's an interesting question. And I, and since I've been in the Netherlands, I've really wondered about um, to what extent this idea of, of growth and growth mindset is kind of, is an American idea. And I'll, I can, I can go into that further, but I've been real, I've been really curious um, about that because it doesn't seem to be like in the language in, in Dutch schools, but you know, so we, I think we focus so much on growth because we're, we are dealing with this pop, with a population of students who is not where society or where education perceives that they should be at their current age and their current school level. And so the idea of the growth mindset is to instill in kids, like you, you don't know this and that's okay. You don't know it yet. It doesn't mean that you will never know it because you don't know it now. It just means that you need to, like, we need to teach you in a different way. You need to learn it in a different way. Um, We need to take care of some of your other needs that aren't being met, that are um, kind of impeding your your access to your education so that you can grow. Um, And so what that actually looks like in, in, in our school is that our students are really, really aware of their data. So if, so it's, it's like no, nothing's secret, nothing's hidden. You know, so if a student is reading, is a, is 12, but he's reading on as an eight year old may read, we say, Hey, like you are four years behind in your reading, but that's okay. Um, that's okay. Let's set some goals. We're like, we're really intentional about goal setting. Um, let's track your progress towards your goals so that we can show that you show you that you can grow. Um, so that's, that's really, really valuable for us because I think when you have students who, um, are growing up in really disadvantaged backgrounds, um, they might be receiving a lot of negative messaging from society, from their home, um, that simply showing students that they can do something that they can grow um, is really powerful in our setting. I can totally agree with that. Empowering uh, students to believe in themselves. I think it's one of the most important jobs and tasks for a teacher in a school. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Um, Okay. So talking a little bit about this empowerment, um, uh, and talking about innovation within schools in general, why do you think um, there seems to be more and more focus on this social, on the development of the social emotional skills uh, besides academic performance? Oh, uh, that, that's such a good question. I I think there, are, <laughs> I think there are several several reasons. Um, I think it depends, kind of, what level of of student. Um, we're talking about, but the two things that are coming to mind are, are firstly, I think students are, are growing up now, um, like in a, uh, at least in the U S context, um, are growing up in a really hectic time. Um, and I can imagine that if I were, if I put myself in the position of being 11 or 12, in our current like political climate, in our current social climate, I can like I really perceive how truly stressful it is. Um, and I think that there are so many influences that, that my students have now that I that I really did not um, encounter when I was their age. Like social media is a really big one and um, this constant access to Instagram and Snapchat and this like constant comparison that student that these kids are always living within. Um, I think it's created a different in, in kind of environment and a different context that adults need to work with. Um, so we need to kind of redefine and re-understand how students are relating to one another. Um, and that's a really, I kind of mentioned that previously we have in our school, we have a lot of difficulty with peer-to-peer relationships. Um, and so, and I, I imagine that other schools do also. And so really focusing on these, on these skills like cooperation, collaboration, and teaching them really explicitly, 
um, is I think absolutely necessary. And so like what that, (laughs) what that means and, and how that translates to a classroom is so, for example, when I, students, believe it or not, when they're 12 or 13, like, will not collaborate naturally, will not collaborate organically. So as the teacher, you really have to intentionally create structures in a lesson where you name, like, we are going to collaborate. This is what it's going to look like. Let's practice. These are the expectations. Um, Oh, we didn't do it right the first time. Let's practice again. And being able to explicitly like really train students and give them um, the skills they need to, to collaborate and communicate, for example, successfully um, is perhaps not something that existed within education like 20 years ago when I was in middle school. Um, but it's, I think it's really necessary now. Um, and then I think when we talk about older students, I know that, and this is a, topic of interest for both you and I it's like what are how are we preparing all of these kids to enter the workforce um, and be prepared and so I think that part of the the dialogue between companies and businesses that are starting to work with 21, 22, 23, like young you know young very young professionals some of the feedback that they're giving um, back to schools and back to education institutions is that a lot of their, those kids are like not ready, um, that they're not prepared, um, that they're, they don't have a lot of these, the, I think the common term is soft skills. I don't really like that term, but like the inter, the interpersonal skills, um, that you, that one really needs to be successful in a, in a job space, um, I think employers are giving feedback back to school saying like, ah, we need, we need to um, look at this, how we can support kids better so that they're more prepared to enter the, the workforce. Yes, definitely makes sense. <laughs> um, what would you say was your biggest learning so far from all these experiences that you've had from experiencing these two different systems uh, of education? What would you say was your greatest learning? Well, from both my, both, from both experiences, both in the U S and in, and seeing your, the European context, um, it, it affirms something that I really, really value and, um, that I implement a lot as an, as an educator and, and that I'm really, um, intentionally designing into this new school is that, of the value of learning by experiencing. Um, So when I think of the task that I've set for myself of creating a school where students can really self-explore, find their strengths, find their interests in order to make more informed choices after they graduate, um, in order to do that, students really need to gain exposure. They need to gain experience. Um, and they need to learn by going out into the world. And I think that at some levels of the European education system, um, like in the Netherlands, they do that really well. Um, students have a lot of opportunity to interact with potential you know, job prospects, whether that's through internships, shadowing days, um, like uh, what do they call it? Excursions or even professionals coming into the schools. Um, I see a lot of just kind of exploration um, of of potential post secondary opportunities. Um, and then something that I've seen both in the U.S. and in Europe is the idea of project based learning and really taking your learning and and applying it. The, like, take the concepts, take the skills and apply them to a real world problem um, is really the way I think all, all, all kids should be learning. Um, and so that's a big, a big takeaway and a very deep belief that I hold about um, teaching and learning and something that I, mm-hmm. I really hope to design into this, into this new school we're, we're creating. Sounds amazing. More collaboration between different areas of life. 
that's that would that would be best. That um, would definitely definitely uh, be best. <laughs> awesome. Um, what was I about to ask? There was a question in my my mind. I forgot it for now. <laughs> um, oh, okay. So this project is about change makers. Um, what is for you a change maker? That's a that's a good question. I think um, without being too like heady about it, um, too theoretical. <laughs> like in in practice, I think in practice, a change maker. Um, is somebody who I, has identified a problem that is relevant to them um, and meaningful to them, and then somebody who begins the process of designing uh, designing around that problem, um, and then somebody who has the initiative, somebody who takes it upon themselves to um, start to implement, go through the design process, find um, the point of change, and then start to find the people, find the resources, find um, whatever really implementable next steps it takes um, to to test to test um, their solution, and then continue to go through the design process about um, and evaluate is it is the solution working how can we improve it if it's not improve improving the the identified problem go back to the drawing board and and try again mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. do you think uh we could already start teaching kids to be to become change makers Ab absolutely yep and i think that goes back to this this idea of um project-based learning and i know a lot of schools are really um there's full school schools in the U.S. completely designed around um, the design process and, and giving kids access to that type of thinking and training kids in that type of thinking from, from really early on. Um, and I know there's even schools in the U.S. that have um, opportunities for students to, to identify problems in their community and then actually go reach out to industry partners reach out to businesses and say hey we like we have a solution can we try this um and that's so 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 powerful and those those types of programs just need to be need to be scaled definitely um what is the change that you would like to see in your lifetime so <laughs> from from the education context um, the, I think there are a few really critical changes that I'd love to see in, at, in schools. Um, the first is I, I really think there needs to be a, a, a critical shift in, in U.S. schools away from this concept of seat time. So like, saying that a student needs to and, and using letter grades like a b c d to, to evaluate students I, I think that's that's really antiquated and so i think in my lifetime i'd really like to see a, a massive movement towards competency-based and project-based um, mastery of skills and and i think that that has a lot of broader implications for like what what will change and so Something that should change is this idea that a classroom shouldn't be kids sitting, um, facing forward, looking at the teacher and all the kids homogeneously grouped based on age. Like, you know, maybe you'll have a class with 13 year old with a 17 year old um, and maybe they'll be out in the community to do their learning. Um, I think learning has to become so much more flexible and so much more creative um, than students being really confined to the classroom and we in the we have this term like sage on the stage like the teacher being this imparter of knowledge um that's something i would really like to sh see shifted in my lifetime and then another implication of that of that type of learning um is for teachers and i i really hope that the that the role of the teacher can change um, that the value of a teacher can change. I think that's a 
massive problem in the U.S. is that teaching isn't a highly valued profession, um, despite every educator I know being amazing and passionate and and working like just crazy, putting putting forth crazy amounts of energy for the betterment of their students. And it's um, you know like compared to Finland, when the the profession of a teacher is as valuable as, as other really, really high and pay, high paying professions. So, I th- mm. and then, so I hope the value of a teacher becomes, is, becomes greater. Um, and that teachers mm-hmm. begin to feel like they can be more facilitators and coaches, um, and, and really support students in other ways than just being responsible for, um, for giving, for, presenting content hmm. sounds amazing I can relate more to all of this <laughs> flexible learning and more coaching instead of uh, imparting knowledge mm-hmm. definitely mm-hmm. um it, talking about teachers because uh, you know i from my experience and also from my experience as a student uh, you always kind of tend to blame teachers for you know They just, I don't know, at least from my experience in school, it was always like, oh, these teachers, they teach us all this old school stuff. Why am I, why, where am I going to need all this knowledge and stuff like that? Um, what do you think also working as a teacher, what are the biggest challenges that the teachers have to face within the current system? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the, the big, the big challenge is this, is this structure in the U.S. where we perceive and and it goes back to this this like very antiquated system of when you're 12 years old you're in sixth grade when you're 13 years old you're in seventh grade when you're eight when you're 14 you're in eighth grade and everybody just lear- like this old antiquated belief that kids develop and learn at the same rate at the same time and so the like the implication is that that's how our schools are evaluated. So kids take these state exams that are what, you know, for eighth graders, it's what eighth graders are. I'm putting air quotes right now, supposed to know when they're 14. (laughs) But what we know about, about adolescent development and childhood development is that kids, they develop at all different stages and kids learn in different ways. Um, And so to, ask all of these students to reach this, to accomplish the same tasks at the same time and the, and putting the responsibility on the teacher for, for getting all of these kids to this level by this date. Um, and then having the teachers pay the, the, the teacher's potential job prospects. And then the schools, you know, Mm -hmm. the school's performance rating evaluated on kind of this, like really, uh fake or like very subjective idea of what's of what's best for kids at this one time it just seems like very um nonsensical and 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 actually harmful and i think that that's what's the most distressing for teachers is there's this sense of urgency to get all of these students with who are all little humans with with extremely different profiles and different backgrounds to this level um, by the date of the test or else. Um, and I think that's the biggest obstacle mm-hmm. um, in being a teacher, at least in, in the U.S. right now. Um, well, I, th- I think it's kind of everywhere, everywhere. with little differences, but yeah. more or less, I think being a teacher is it's a really, really tough job that – You have to, you kind of are held accountable by students, by parents, by, I don't know, your superiors, like the principal, by the government. So it's it's a really tough job. You have to deal with too many stakeholders almost. Yeah, that's, that's well um, said. I, I don't think people often realize um, how many how many different stakeholders a teacher is responsible to. But it's a lot. It's really a lot. Yeah. Definitely. Um, so yeah, considering all these challenges, you know, that the teachers have to deal with within within the current uh, system, and 
probably they don't really have too much freedom or even time actually to, to explore new ways of teaching and explore um, yeah, new ways to deliver uh, learning. Uh, what would be your advice to all the teachers out there? Oh, yeah, that's a, yeah, that is a really good a good question because when you oh, I just I just connected or I'm pulling on this idea that you said that teachers don't even have time to explore new ways of learning. And I think that's that is really problematic um, because so for example, I told you about this research project that I implemented um, looking at different mm -hmm. instructional models. Um, you know, and, and some of the findings like were not totally shocking, like surprise, surprise, kids were way more engaged. Um, they self-identified as being more engaged during project-based learning. Um, and then interestingly, their retention um, of knowledge of the content over time was was almost twice as high um, when I did blended learning. So that was when I had kids doing um, kind of hybrid, like sometimes they would be learning content from an online program and sometimes they would be in, in small groups with me as compared to, to traditional learning. Um, so kids were like twice as likely to remember the information two months later when they were accessing it individually on computers than they were when I taught it to them through traditional methods. So all of that is to say like that's extremely valuable information for teachers. Um, like it just in, in the sense that it's like, Hey, maybe you should, we, sh we could try blended learning because we know that this is really effective for retention. Um, so yeah, I guess. So I think my advice to teachers would be um, to stay really, it's hard. It's hard to stay current in learning sciences. Um, know what's know what research says is best for kids um, and then implement something in your classroom and stick stick with it until you have enough data to be able to determine whether or not you perceive it it was an effective strategy sounds amazing and, and i would like to and, uh, yeah. say, and, <laughs> and of course all teachers they need to take take care of themselves do yoga <laughs> <laughs> do yoga, do some meditation, do some self-care so that you can, um, can, you have to give to yourself in order to, con to continue to give to others. Definitely, definitely. And, and to add to that, uh, I would also encourage, you know, maybe uh, school principals or local government uh, people responsible for education to, you know, kind of think at least about changing incentives and changing um the way they evaluate uh, teacher performance uh, because I think yeah from my experience and talking with with some teachers you know even even if you really want to change something or change the way of learning or change the way you interact with your uh, students or even change the content of the of the class it's it's always hard because in the end you know you're evaluated based on tests let's say or on the grades of the student during this test so I would also encourage, you know, people responsible for designing these incentives to actually maybe think about, okay, what if we start evaluating, let's say, uh, schools based on the student feedback and student happiness and, you know, this retention that you mentioned as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, retention, like teacher retention um, is a good measure, is a good index of a school's health. You know, how are teachers staying at that school um, year over year. It's a really good indicator of, a, of the well-being of a school. Definitely. Okay, oh, I could go on about <laughs> this topic forever. <laughs> um, but since we're almost at the end uh, of our podcast, um, let's end on a more inspirational, optimistic note. <laughs> um, yeah, what... Uh, what is the impact that you would like uh, to create with, with this project? So the, I, the impact that I'd like to create is to, is to create, and of course there, there will be significant growing pains, but is to create a school um, that is successful in, in the following ways, is successful in 
serving English language learners, a high percentage of them, is successful in supporting students with high trauma backgrounds um, and supports them by providing very individualized pathways um, by giving students a lot of opportunity to, to learn and grow through um, community partnerships, project-based learning, experiential learning, um, and really make it so that students are the drivers of their own education um, rather than being confined to a predetermined transcript that says what they need to achieve by the end um, of their time in high school. So I, I hope that we can create um, a model, a, a model school that's successful in those ways um, and really be at the forefront of leading the conversation in the U.S. about how to reform um, and redesign urban high schools. Awesome. Sounds amazing. <laughs> um, well, Thank you, Celine, for Thanks, uh, having time uh, yeah, to have this podcast. It was really interesting also to hear more about uh, the U.S. education system and you know how things work there and what are the challenges and also to compare uh, different approaches. So thank you for, for all your insights. And I really hope that you, know, you will make um, Compass Academy um, successful and you will reach the impact that you just mentioned. Thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Yeah, stay tuned. I'll let you know how it goes. <laughs>Thank you everyone for listening. This is the Changemaker podcast, a series of interviews with people driven to create a positive impact in their communities and the world. If you like this episode, make sure to reach out. Stay positive, follow your dream, and make this world a better place. See you next week.